Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Waits. Welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. This is Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael, how are you doing? I am doing super duper, actually. Fantastic. (laughs) Sounding good? It's been a good day. It's been been a a big week. week. Big week. Yeah, a lot going on. We've got to talk about our voting, what's going on in the Asia Tech Podcast Awards, as well as developments in Asia in general. Where do we want to start? Let's just start with, you know, outliers. Let's start with um, some of the votings. Yeah. So it's been doing some interesting things actually over the past week and really over the past couple of weeks. You know, what have we learned really? Mm. And I think one of the things we've learned is that people care. You know, when we first started doing this, let's just use the category of like who the most impactful, I don't know what the terminology is that we want to use, you know, but who's the most sort of impactful person in the ecosystem in Asia? Who's making a big contribution, right? Mm. What's the answer? And, well, the answer is we don't know yet for yeah. sure. But we've, if we, you know, when we first decided to put this out there, we wanted to give awards to people and give recognition to people. You know, we picked five people kind of at random just so people understood the type of person. We didn't want to have any sort of, you know, bias. Mm-hmm. I think we put like five or seven people on the list and now there are 50 people there because we gave people the right to nominate other people and even nominate themselves. And both of those things have happened. Right. But we're talking about a list that has 50 people in it from every country in Asia. Um, people from those countries, people that live in those countries but aren't from those countries. And what we've seen over the past two weeks is really a surge so a separation where the top five are really separated from everybody else. It's more like the top three or four are separated mm. from everybody else. And the top two yeah. are more than sort of three or four times away in vote getting for everybody else. That right? is the elite. So here we are with the award number one, which Mike was talking about, which is the contribution to the Asian Startup Ecosystem Award, which is awarded to an individual who's made a significant effort to grow the Asian startup ecosystem in 2017. And on this particular award, if you were to look at the top five alone, four right. of those were nominated. So we only seeded one of those. That was Casey Lau. But now we have... That's true. That's true. Four out of the five which were nominated by you. So should we have a quick look at who is in the top five this week? Sure. Let's go from the bottom to the top, right? So... Number five is Ben Wong. Ben is involved in something called Startup Launchpad, right? Mm. And number four is Andrew Liu, fan of the show, a friend of the show, um, who is involved with something called Quick Start, with a Q, yeah. Q-I-C-S-T-A-R-T. Um, Casey Lau is number three, and Casey's involved with Rise, but also, you know, involved, you know, deeply in sort of the Hong Kong and the rest of the Asian ecosystem. And then we just have separation, right? It's William Baobin, I think, someone that people have heard of, but also someone that we didn't put on the list to begin with who has been nominated um, and who's seen a surge of votes over the past couple of weeks. Um, Drum roll. And he runs this thing called China Accelerator, so you would think that there's a lot of impact there. And then there's this thing going on that we're not really sure we understand yet. But again, the way we run the votes, it's a thing. Yeah. And that's Kenny Thing. Kenny Thing, and, you for life. Down in Kuala Lumpur. He, 
Yeah, you for life in Kuala Lumpur, and you know Kenny's clearly had a massive contribution because he's had the ability to sort of rally the troops around all the things that he's done. He's done, and if you go look on the internet and try to find out what he's been involved in, and you know it's insurance for the uninsured, and the people that support him very much support him. Yeah, six hundred and forty-eight votes, which is amazing, yeah. really. It is amazing considering we've had over 2,000 votes for this. And, you know, I, I think considering that no one's ever made awards before in Asia like this, having 2,000 people vote already and we're not nearly at the end of this. I mean, where, when are we going to stop voting, you said, November 31st? Yeah, end of November. So we still have a good three weeks, four weeks to roll. Yeah, notice I said November 31st. There are 30 days in November, yeah. so well played, Michael. Exactly. For those of you doing like nursery rhymes at home, trying to figure out how many days there are on every month. You know what? Even wrong. this day, I still have to work it out. 30 days. So do I. So I sing it. There is no uh, easier way. June and November. Okay, yeah, I got that. Okay. Anyway, uh, but I'm glad you didn't call me out on it. I was able to call oh, myself That one out. got by me, totally. <laughs> even as I was saying it, I knew I was wrong. Um but I think this brings up an interesting point, which if you don't mind, I'd like to um, I'd like to discuss just a little bit. You know, sometimes the ability to measure somebody's contribution is, you know, on the margin, it's hard to do because some people just operate in the trenches. They never come out and they don't care about the recognition that they get personally. But the people that know them are really aggressively interested in making sure that that other person who maybe personally is disinterested, mm. but his, you know, his supporters really, or her supporters really want to make sure that that person gets the recognition that they deserve. And maybe one of the reasons why is because they're so busy doing things and accomplishing things and helping people that they don't have time to self promote. I yeah. think we may have, we may have talked about this last week, right? Self promotion and con contributions are two completely different things. And I think that's certainly the case with these two, Kenny Thing and William Balbean, and for many on the list as well, I have to say, particularly these two, Kenny Thing, William Balbean, very active in their local ecosystems. I mean, they're not Pan-Asian names. They're very well known in their local areas, and they have a big support. And I think that's fantastic because exactly what you said, Michael, is that they're in the trenches doing this stuff, that they're not out there yeah. actively promoting their brand for want of a better word, to the wider audience. So it's kind of our responsibility to get their name out there because if it wasn't for platforms like this, you know, maybe their work would go unnoticed by some people outside of Asia, right? So I think in a way we're trying to help get their name out there because they, they thoroughly deserve it. If they're getting between them at this stage, what, over a thousand votes. Well, right. I mean, that's a significant contribution, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I've I've gone back and forth on this sort of over the past few weeks since we initiated the voting and just the fact that people are out there nominating people that were not originally on the list. And I think probably more than 50, if not more than 50% of the people out there um, in, in the top five or in top 10, excuse me, have been nominated. It means again, that there are a lot of people that we didn't know yet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That are having a big contribution because, you know, like even Takashima-san, right? Soichiro Takashima, who's the mayor of Fukuoka, who's doing some really good things there. You know, is it the case that he's had less of a contribution than some other people? Maybe, maybe not. But the fact that he's only received 13 votes so far, 
you know, may not be correlated necessarily to the amount of impact that he's had a contribution. But it's interesting that just getting on the list, I think, for everybody here is really good. But the separation is 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 there. Yeah. But there's still a way to go. I mean, if you want to nominate, nominate. Go ahead. We still have time. com slash rankings. And Kenny Thing has really been a thing only for a couple of weeks on our rankings. So, Right. I mean, two weeks, three weeks ago, he didn't exist there. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So he was a new entry. Should we talk about the main new award, which is the Accelerator Award? Do we want to have a look at that? Because that's really taken off today. It has, hasn't it? I mean, how many votes do we have there? Over 300, and that's just been out there for, what, two days? Right. So 361 votes. This is for the best startup accelerator program in Asia 2017. So for these, all the guys running these sort of three-month programs to help startups get from idea to possibly first paying customer or to product or into a shape where they can go out into the wild. So we have some really interesting names on this list, right? And not possibly the names that you would pick out the air if you didn't actually see the list first. I mean, some of these names are expected but some of these are new entrants people that we know but maybe don't have big brand names in the accelerator world so what's going on here do you want to give us an overview of the the voting on the accelerator program award yeah because i think we've seen a bunch of interesting things here right one is they're your typical accelerators right like china accelerator magic spark labs these are companies that everybody knows you know dtac accelerate the fin lab then it's in the name right mm. um but, you know, 500 startups is also on the list and people, you know, sometimes forget the fact that they do run, you know, batches and classes and they do it globally as well. And, you know, say what you will about their investment strategy, but they do spend a lot of time and energy, not just in San Francisco. They run, run a program in Kobe. They do some stuff in the rest of Asia. They're starting to do things in Korea, too. And, you know, it's likely that the way that they're getting votes is, and I'm not saying that they're encouraging it, but from their participants. And what that means is that the participants are generally satisfied or well satisfied with it. I mean, there are plenty of people that go through programs that hate them, Mm. not just in the um, startup world. And I think what we're finding here is that, you know, 500 startups, impact tech, these people are really enjoying and benefiting, they believe, from these programs. And that's why they're getting voted the way they are. But if you, again, if you go down the list, Supercharger, right? Brink, we know, you know, we know Bay. We know the hacks people. Wavemaker, we understand that. But Betatron, you know, I had not heard of Betatron before this. The Hatch, right? Aviva Digital, there's mocks down there as well. But then Get Cover, Paperclip, I've sort of heard of peripherally. But again, what this tells us is in the same way, if you look at the list of individual contributions, the accelerator contribution is is kind of mirroring, in some ways, what we've seen for the individuals, and that is there are a lot of accelerators out there that, again, are just operating in the trenches. They're not trying to get um, a lot of <clears throat> press and recognition because they're too busy trying to get things done. But I think one of the other points that we should make is that it still points to the fact that, one, nobody dominates the space yet, and two... It's still early innings out here. So sorry for the American baseball analogy, but it's still early. The way to go, Because yeah. it is, though, right? Because Mist, Betatron, The Hatch, Aviva Digital. I mean, Startup Bootcamp, but 
what's the association for that and other startup boot camps that we've heard about? We don't we don't know, right? And we can we'll do more work on that. But what but about I these the top really three? Good. I mean, this is really interesting. I mean, just today we've seen BNV Lab, which I believe are based in Jakarta, tear up that that ranking. So they're number three. So that's BNV Lab, who I believe are a fintech accelerator, in at number three. I think so. And then you have Impact Tech, which is Kinerate and Yoav's Yoav. setup, which is social impact at number one. So it's very interesting. You have this diversification of accelerators. You don't just have generic accelerators. You have now very specific accelerators. So Impact Tech, which is focused on social impact at number one. 500 startups, maybe a general one, but that's the big name in Asia, maybe. BNV right. focused on fintech. China Accelerator focused on China specifically. Mm-hmm. So you're having this magic is Magic's Malaysia, Sparks Labs Indonesia, right? And I never would have thought of it's hard to interrupt you, but I would not have considered Jungle to be an accelerator per se. Mm. But the people that are invested by them do, and that's I think significant as well. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I think this is the point, isn't it? There's uh, it's difficult sometimes to identify what an accelerator is, but the ones that are out there are getting quite niche in their approach. You can't just be a generic accelerator now. People need to have something specific. I know we've seen this, for example, like with Impact Tech, working right. specifically for social impact. That's really interesting. That shows sort of an evolution of the the ecosystem or the professionalization, maybe, as you like to call it, right? Right, right. And that was the point. That was the next point I was going to make. I mean... One of the things that I'd like to say about Impact Tech is, first of all, it's very new in this region, right? Kinneret and Yoav have built a business or two in Singapore in the region and have moved into sort of the acceleration and investment space, right? So trying to teach people what they've learned, you know, paying forward a little bit. But also the entity in Singapore has not been around as long maybe as 500 startups or China Accelerator. So they haven't had that many batches go through either. And yet, there they are. Yeah. And you're right. The other component that's different is, and I think all of them, I think 500 would say the same thing. And I think China Accelerator, I'm not so familiar with BNV, but they'd also, I think they'd all say that they're trying to make some kind of impact, that none of them would be unhappy if that was the case. Mm. But the fact that one of the tenets of impact tech is the fact that they want to have social impact along with making a profit means that you're right. There is sort of a growing up and professionalization of what's happening here. And people feel like, you know, a phrase I think you're going to hear me saying a lot now is what are you like? What are you optimizing for? Right. Can you be a really successful, very profitable company, but not only optimizing for profits? And I think that the fact that Impact Tech is at the top of that list means that some people are thinking about, you know, multiple things to optimize for. And that's important, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people look at the effectiveness of an accelerator program on what they were traditionally set up to do, which was just to get the startups out there and get those startups funded, right? So people look at the success of an accelerator program measured in the amount of funds that they can raise. Is that really standing today? Is that the best way to measure an accelerator program? How many of these startups actually get funded? Yeah, I mean, it's one way, but I think it's, I've, again, I think it's hard, and and I'll tell you one of the reasons why. You know, ask yourself, and I don't mean you, but I mean, let's all ask ourselves, like, how long has Y Combinator been around, 
you know, how long has BetaWorks been around or Science in the United States? These are comp- you know, these are both investment vehicles and also accelerators. They've been around for a long time. If you look at the length of time that these companies and that these entities have existed in Asia, but in Southeast Asia more specifically, I mean, that's four years, five wow. years. Yeah. You know, and the most famous one was JFDI, you know. Yeah. The, you know, and that's, that's gone now. They've redirected themselves to doing other things. So, you know, just – and a lot of their companies did get funded. The question is, is that the right – again, what are we optimizing for, right? Um, if the impact tech team is optimizing for both social impact for those investments but also profitability, it appears that they must be achieving something or that the companies that are going through their program feel like they will achieve that, and that's why they're getting voted so highly. Hmm. Is there anybody missing from this list that should be on this list? Well, I mean, how many do we have? One, two, three, four, five. There's like 20 or so people here. More, 30. I, I, 30? Yeah. Right. It just gets – it's more and more every day, right? So before we start, I'd like to sit down and write it, but maybe I just didn't refresh my browser fast enough. Um, I'm sure there are people here that – I mean, I'm sure there are entities here that are missing, but none of them kind of jump out to me. But what will be interesting is – so for this accelerator vote, is this going to run until the end of November as well? Is that yeah. what we're thinking yeah. about doing? So there's four weeks left on this. We're just getting started. So if you have an accelerator or you're part of an accelerator, or you work with an accelerator, you're not on the list. Get on the list because there's still plenty of time. It's early days yet, early innings, as Michael likes to say. <laughs> I'm trying not to be so, you know, <laughs> American centric, which is easy for me since I haven't lived there in 30 years. But fair enough. I guess the sports thing never gets out yeah, of your yeah, brain. Exactly. But yeah, I don't see anybody missing. But although I'm sure that you know, if you had asked me about the list of individual contributions, I probably would have said a week ago that there was nobody missing, and yet. You know, there is Richard Robinson on the list and Vincent Fong. I mean, all these people that really are having an impact and a contribution. And, you know, we're just finding out more and more about it. And and I think that, you know, in a, in a society where, like, winning is the most important and being number one is the thing that, like, gets you out of bed every morning, I honestly think that being on this list is important because it means that the work that you're doing, mm-hmm. particularly if it's very specific work, is getting recognized by people. That's really great. But I think the other thing that's going to fall out here, um, particularly on the individual contributions, because this is, I think, where the stark reality is going to be, is that you're going to see some people that are really self-promoting who you would have thought would have many more votes, would be much closer to the top or not like out of the top ten. And yet there they are languishing. I won't say where, but they're definitely languishing. And... You know, I, I think we'll see over time. We're not sure where we're going to end up, but we've got in the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. In the top ten, we only have two, no, three ladies actually. Hmm. Yeah. So seventy thirty. I'd like to see that slightly more balanced. I'm not telling people how to vote, and which is interesting because right below the top ten, you have Ashley and Angela as well. So in the top twelve, you've got five. Hmm. So that's closer to fifty fifty but not close enough. Anyway, um, but I do think it's interesting, and you're seeing a good sort of country representation and, you know, sort of business representation there. I think it's really interesting, and, and that, that's that been good for us as well. And I think if you – we didn't plan on talking about this, but I think if you go down 
the list for some of the other voting stuff that we've been doing, even on the venture capital side, you just see names on the list that you may not have expected, right? And like who? Well, like, you know, AlphaCap. Yeah. You know, the NUS Enterprise, which is associated with the universities there, Planet N, you wouldn't have thought, SAIF Capital, you know, mm. those the ones you would have expected, like Cocoon, Infinity, Sinovation, Keming, which is in China. Yeah. These, are, you know, these are ones that you would have all expected. And, you know, again, look at the performance of 500. Yeah. They're right at the top there. Exactly. So. Well, isn't that, it interesting? That's surprising to me, though, right? Sorry, go ahead. Well, you say it's surprising. I think, you know, one of the, the objectives of this project is, and I think this is important for people to know why we're doing it. We don't just want to have a bit yep. of fun and give out awards and, you know, see who's the winners and so on. We want to map the Asian tech ecosystem because that's Asia good point. is, you know, growing at a very fast rate. It's not as established. It doesn't have the legacy that you have in the Bay Area or California or whatever doesn't have that. So it's growing completely from scratch. And because it's growing so fast, it's very difficult to know where everybody fits in. So when people think about the VCs and the accelerator programs in an area like Mountain View or an area like Sand Hill Road, it's all pretty much mapped out. But right. here in Asia, it's it's Greenfield. So in that sense, what's happening here is we are mapping out in, in an indirect way the Asian tech ecosystem so people can understand, okay, who's in this ecosystem for starters, right? You know, we don't know right. which I mean, VCs are active, which VCs are having a difference, which people are active and so on. So this is kind of what we're trying to achieve here. Right. And what that means is that if we do this properly, we should have a pretty good list of you know, funds and accelerators and individual contributors, you know, along with co-working spaces and then some media people as well. And then we end up with, I don't know, what would you call it? Like a pretty good, you know, directory of mm. things that people can then look at in reference, I think, if 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 we can end up getting this done right. I mean, and that, that would be actually a good outcome for this. And then that means as we get into next year as well, you know, we'll get into June and July of next year and we'll start voting again, similar categories, and maybe we'll add some categories, right? Yeah, I, I think yeah. as the ecosystem develops, do you think it makes sense to sort of initiate votes around some other topics as well? Just to, again, for two reasons, at least, at a minimum. One is, you know, to continue seeing who and what types of entities and people are having the most impact um, in the minds of the participants, right? Mm, yeah. That's first of all. And second of all, just to help map out the whole thing and then you know, get a core understanding of what that directory and map out looks like, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really interesting point. And I bring this around to a comment that we had from a listener, Andrew Liu, who's actually also on the, the, the vote. On in, the list. Yeah, from Quick Start. So he contacted us and he said, well, what about universities? Because universities are a key pool of talent and research and often universities are instrumental in spinning out ideas or startups in some cases. If you were to go to the US, you pretty much know who the key universities are, especially in the startup scene. There would be like a handful of maybe four or five universities, which are the core universities, right? You would imagine that everybody knows who right. they are because, you know, their contribution is not just the last three or four years. Their contribution is the last 30, 40 years in the startup scene, the, the tech scene, right? right? 
you can map that out. It's got it's got a precedent. There's books written about this stuff. But here in Asia, it's different. So when Andrew says, well, what about universities? To your point about, do you think there's other organizations out there? Well, maybe here's, here's one we could start with. We can say, okay, what about the universities? Who is really making a significant contribution in Asia in the startup scene? Like with the VCs, we, you know, we don't really know. We know the big names like the Sequoias and so on. But who's really making an impact here in Asia? So maybe that's one that we can start with. I think that's actually a great idea. That's actually a great idea. And I'd like to thank actually Andrew for proposing that. And we should work on that, I think, Graham. That's a great idea. And it helps, again, map out that ecosystem. I'd love to see this put into nodes and see how those nodes interact with each other as well. Like do some real data analysis around how the universities interact with the accelerators and how they, how those accelerators interact with the venture capitalists and who at those VCs are the main contributors and who's like not self-promoting, but actually working hard in the trenches to give back to the ecosystem. I think once you map all that out, there's a lot to be learned about it, right? Mm. Yeah. And it doesn't stop there. Surely there's more, categories that we could think of i'm sure yeah people yeah, and i think now that we've them, actually, right? you know this is what, yeah it's yeah, so in process. a way we can yep yeah, we can take suggestions right we picked the ones that we thought were the most important to us and it was really an outgrowth of us trying to figure out you know what made the best startup city and what we realized was you know all the sort of baseline level things that people talked about uh, internet speeds and things like that that's a given i mm. think you said this a few weeks ago those were table stakes but what we found out was if we combine all these other pieces of the nodes inside these questions, we'll get a much better sense for where the biggest contributions are getting made, both from an entity perspective and from an individual perspective. And that's important. I want to bring up one category which we haven't talked about tonight, but you've just talked about it now because it always interests me about how we're doing on the award for the best startup city which is where it all kind of started wasn't it and it started yeah. when we said we get out there and we discover what makes a great startup city in asia and we went on the road went to fukuoka went to shanghai went to tokyo bangkok and it's still an ongoing process but we actually put this vote out there and we also publicly went out with our nominations just so people knew that we had an opinion. We had a position. Oh, my God. I, I didn't look at that li this list yet today, but look at that. Go ahead. I think I know the point you're going to make. But There's some really interesting ahead. developments there. I mean, what was interesting about this is just how strongly some of the new entrants are going as well. And we're talking about Singapore and Hong Kong because they're the top. You know, they're sort of running away with that at the moment. But have a look at Bangalore and Taipei. I never would have thought they would have been in the rankings. But there they are sitting at, what, number eight, nine? How about that? I never would yeah, have considered eight, those to be contenders. I mean, even Tokyo being above Manila and Beijing is slightly surprising to me because in most people's mind, you know, Japan is a country of, besides Fukuoka, which is making a specific um, desire to be a startup city, but the rest of Japan is really just corporate, right? Japan Inc., I think, still stands. And yet, there, there it is. I think it was at number 10 or 11, but you, you're right. Taipei and Bangalore, I never would have expected to right. be where they are. And um, just let's just go back and talk about what 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 were my three votes? What did I say? Singapore, Bangkok, no, and he didn't Jakarta. Say, he didn't say Singapore. You said Bangkok, Jakarta, and Saigon. Are you sure? Yeah, it's on the <laughs> record. For anybody you want to bring Michael up? Tweet us at Asia Tech Pod. You know the score. Michael's trying to trying to rewrite history here. <laughs> Am I? I don't normally do that. 
I'm I'm bad at I'm bad at that. I'm pretty because you're. I'm pretty sure we had this conversation. Your choice for a startup city was based on growth possibility potential. So you went for those really ah, fair enough. You went for those more cutting edge cities which had less developed startup scene, but maybe you know they had a lot to offer. Not yet okay. developed as Singapore and Hong Kong, but I'm pretty sure you can go back to last week's episode and check it out. Fair any, anyway, your point, Michael. Don't let me derail you. Don't let the facts get in the way of your point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. We're not going to go there, are we? Exactly. Don't let, don't let the facts get in the way of, of my opinion. Um, but yeah, so the top three are Singapore, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. Yeah. Yeah, makes a certain amount of sense, actually. And you saw, I believe, and I'm glad you brought this up, because I believe it was this week or after we podcasted last week, but somewhere in the interim between last time we talked and this time, and that is that Singapore and Hong Kong have come out and said that they're going to do some joint work to create sort of a fintech hub for Asia that yeah. includes both of those cities, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. That's so exciting. Well, it's super exciting because... Like instead of competing with each other internally in the region, now they can sort of join forces and compete with the rest of the world, which is kind of what they should be doing. If you think about, you know, London maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, and Germany being the centers of finance yeah. in, in Europe, Switzerland maybe a little bit, and then obviously New York and the United States, maybe Tokyo to a certain extent in Asia, but in real Asia, ex-Japan – it's really been Hong Kong and Singapore for two decades. And it's good to see them getting together and saying, let's join forces and make this even stronger. Yeah. And I think we're entering a new era, aren't we, where Singapore and Hong Kong are no longer alternatives, but, you know, for many sectors as well, especially, I mean, considering fintech, you know, you never would have thought you go back 10, 15 years in terms of finance, putting cities like Singapore on the map. I mean, these are pretty much service industry based or manufacturing based cities, right? Singapore's 20 only, years ago, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, coming out of electronics, building those headphones yep. and hard drives and all that. But to think now Singapore could become a world leader in fintech when, you know, places like London, which would have traditionally taken the mantle, are being left behind. Yeah, and what does that mean? I mean, again, this is a really good topic, right? So city-specific. But the Monetary Authority of Singapore actually came out, I believe, again, in the interim between the last time we spoke and recorded and this week and saying, you know what, and I think you and I actually may have spoken about this offline, we're not going to regulate um, ICOs and, and Bitcoin. Mm. And it was a pretty terse statement. And I think the implications there, and again, tell me if you think I'm wrong, the implications there, right, because the whole concept around ICOs, the ones that people talk about the most are, is it a utility token or is it a security, right? And... If it's a security, then the MAS doesn't have to come out and say that they are the regulatory authority of record for it because, by definition, that's true. Right. Right. So it's really interesting. They came out and they said they were not going to regulate them. And I think the real point there was they're already regulated by definition. And I think – I didn't want to go down this path tonight necessarily, but I think it's worth mentioning at least a little bit that you know, if – Four months ago or five months ago, you could make the case or you could argue the case that ICOs were scams. What you're finding out now is that the proper regulatory bodies, including the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, the HKMA, and countries as a whole like Japan, are coming out and saying, these are just new financial products. And there's a regulatory infrastructure that's in place that can handle most of it. And to the extent that 
there are new applications for these products or new sort of specifications for them, we'll get to it. You know, we're paying attention and we want to make it safer for everybody to participate. Like that's the role of the regulator, right? So we're seeing that happen too. That's a little bit off topic, but I think that that's good for Singapore in, in, in particular and Hong Kong as well, like you said, because they will be the financial centers of Asia, the fintech centers of Asia. At some point, Shanghai may, may catch up. Shanghai will catch up. But for now, I think over the next five to 10 years, that's really going to happen in those two places. Don't you think it's also an interesting indictment on the the whole startup scene here in Asia is that the ones that are really pushing ahead are the cities which have less vested interest to hold things back. So, I mean, you just take two examples, fintech is one, and maybe another area is automotive. So we talked a lot about automated vehicles, so self-driving cars and so on. Yes. Now, take Singapore as an example. I don't want to labor the point with Singapore, but I think it's a great example about how having not having sort of an incumbent industry really gives it an opportunity to become a world leader. So with self-driving cars, as an example, Singapore doesn't have any kind of automotive industry of note, right? I mean, it's not like you're building a, a, a startup chain in Germany where you are up against all the, you know, the manufacturers and so on. And there's, right. you can say the same with the banks in some cities as well. Like, you know, like you said about regulating ICOs, maybe the banks are scared. So, you know, if you had a big banking lobby in your city or your, your country, that would exert a kind of pressure which would keep that startup scene down. And we're starting to see, we're seeing that in certain cities with fintech and with, for example, automotive. So you'd like Singapore, which doesn't have really anything apart from a legacy of manufacturing and a little bit of services, you know, that gives it free reign to go and just really let rip with this stuff. So that's really interesting because that has a, a very positive impact on making it you know a great place for startups right so if you have no vested interests and to a certain extent no sort of legacy institutions that are fighting you know the tailwinds or trying to stand in the way of them what you end up is i believe much faster innovation and in the fintech space that ends up being really important mm -hmm. and we're you know we're seeing that across the board like look at a place like china you know, what is it called? The Greater Bay Region used to be called the Pearl River Delta. But you're talking about 11 cities, including Hong Kong and Macau. They've got, you know, almost 200 million people living in them and an economy of 1.3 trillion. And yet there is still a GDP of 1.3 trillion for that area. And you're still seeing massive development there. And a lot of that development can happen because there's no legacy institutions that are getting in the way of that innovation and development. And that's the point that you're making, which I think is really significant. Yeah, because, you know, that's a, a key component of what makes a great startup city. You know, a, a pro-business or pro-startup regulation. And we'll see that play out, especially yeah. with, as, for example, AI, fintech, automotive cross into new territory. It could go either way, couldn't it? And we're starting to see it. Like with fintech, I mean, you follow this closely with your crypto podcast, right. how, how, how some cities or some countries are now trying to regulate this stuff. And it's only kind of going to backfire in the long run, I think. I, I agree. And look, this was the conversation which we'll come out with, I believe, in a week or so that I was having with Tony Verb, right? And Tony started this thing, an entity called the Greater Bay Ventures and Advisors with the whole idea is that it's so greenfield there and that creating the connectivity between all of those 
like I said, 11 cities and making them interconnected and interrelated um, is going to create massive economies of scale there. But again, very possible to do because from a governmental, economic and sort of social perspective, it's very greenfield there. And they can in this greater Bay Area, Mm. there's no legacy in the way of them creating sort of innovative solutions to whether it's a smart city or transportation or any of those things. That's a big opportunity. Great. So we move on from the voting today. Something else you want to talk about? Well, I just think that there's there are two more things really that I want to talk about, and I, and I think there's a sea change taking place in the world, and I think it's I think a lot of it is focusing around, you know, it, it's really two sided, right? It's collaborative, meaning if you're a smaller startup, um, at some point you're going to have to choose a side and decide who you're going to collaborate with on the big side. We saw this happen in the United States, right? Mm. In other words, a lot of the e-commerce companies had to figure out with whom that they were going to associate, or were they going to try to go it alone? Right, So Amazon actually ended up being the entity that all of them um, associated with. But you did see places like Jet that were acquired by Walmart right, and a whole bunch of other places that were acquired by Amazon. But there was that sort of bifurcation around who do we collaborate with. We saw it much earlier in the tech ecosystem with Microsoft right, and Apple arguing about things. But we're starting to see the same thing actually happen in Asia. And there's no definitive answer to this, but I just wanted to bring it up as a concept and get people to think about it. And part of the reason why, again, just to reference something that we've been working on as well, is I was talking to Nikhil Kapoor, and he writes something called Grayscale VC, which I find is a great reference for anybody who's looking into just learning more about the whole ecosystem. And he wrote something called Choosing Sides, right? And it's like, how do you collaborate and cooperate at the same time that you're competing and how do you think about, you know, what these big Chinese companies, whether it's, you know, JD or Alibaba or Tencent, that are now starting to figure out that the next place for them to expand is into Southeast Asia. It's another part of Asia where they have not had a big impact. We saw it originally with Alibaba and Lazada. So now the question is, how do we keep an eye on that? It's something It's going to be a developing story, I think, to which we should pay and everybody else should pay very close attention is, you know, as companies like Gojek, Grab Taxi, I'm still called Grab Taxi, sorry, but Grab, um, Tokopedia, as these big companies um, start to sort of invest in other startups or starts to collaborate with them, who's going to win that competition as well? And how do you find the right balance between collaborating and competing? And also, if you, you at some point, you are going to have to choose a side. But the question is, you know, is it fatal if you choose the wrong side? Mm. In other words, JD's not going away, Tencent's not going away, Alibaba's not going away. But I think before you decide with whom you're going to collaborate, you have to decide a few other things, right? One of which is, who's the stronger person in your space? Who's been the most helpful to other startups? Is this going to help you in your funding? Do they understand best practices in your sector? Things like this that you're going to have to consider because at some point you may have to choose a side. Right. And we talked about this before, but there's this concept that like companies are not bought, they're sold. In other words, that the smaller companies that end up getting acquired are not just sitting around waiting to get acquired, but they're doing specific things to make themselves attractive and available for even companies the same size. 
but definitely for companies that are larger than theirs. So the question is, you know, from a collaborative standpoint is how do you set yourself up as well so you're the best collaborative partner? So it's just something that I want people to start thinking about in the context of um, the other topics that we've discussed. What is it in the news that's made you think about that more or want to talk about it? Is there something that's happened in the last few weeks or some kind of acquisition well, so, or investment? Yeah. I'm, yeah, it's a really good point, actually. So today or yesterday it was announced that JD, um, in collaboration with two other investors, and if you give me a second, I'll tell you who they are, right? So let's just, let's just do this. It's not a problem. JD. Um, and Pomelo just announced today that they, that JD, China's JD led a $19 million investment round in Pomelo. Now, Pomelo is a company f- founded by David Zhao in Thailand. Their three biggest markets, I believe, are Thailand, Indonesia, and one more, maybe Vietnam. I can't remember. But the point is, or Singapore. But the point is that, you, as we talked about earlier, you're starting to see these companies come in to Asia, meaning Southeast Asia. And that just made me start to think about, particularly also because I spoke to Nikhil yesterday about this, and I do read his grayscale.vc. It just made me think about how, what do you have to determine when you're either making yourself available for collaboration or for purchase, and how do you decide which side to choose? And I think that's really important, right? Because even if you're not building a company, and in some cases people do, and I don't think it's a great methodology, but in some cases people are building their companies to be acquired, which in my mind is a bad idea because you're not trying to build a sustainable business. You're trying to build... You know, you're building for financial reasons as opposed for structural reasons, and that's always a bad idea in my mind. But, you know, Pomelo raised raised this money, which meant that they set themselves up and structured their business in such a way that it was attractive. And they were probably, and I don't know this, but they were probably out trying to raise money for sure. And, you know, when a big Chinese company comes in the same way that Alibaba bought Lazada, now owns most of it, if not all of it, the same thing is going to start happening with other companies in Southeast Asia and vice versa. And there's no reason why, over time, that that type of M&A and combination cannot be cross-border in multiple ways. It's not always going to have to be you know, these larger Chinese companies coming in and buying the Asian companies. You could see Indian companies doing yeah. it. You can see Indonesian, right? So Gojek. Um, which is an Indonesian company, will also be acquiring companies. And Grab, which was originally Malaysian but now has its corporate headquarters in Singapore, will also be doing the same thing, very well funded, very well capitalized. And I think that that's a trend you're going to start to see happen here. And remember, we're now six or seven years into the ecosystem's development in this region, depending on when you start counting. And I don't think it's any surprise that a normal venture capital fund and a normal investment horizon is somewhere between five and seven years. So the fact that you're starting to see some of this consolidation, but also, like I said, cooperation and sort of side choosing, I think should not be a big surprise. Mm. When you've mentioned M&A activity emanating from China, you talked about some of the Southeast Asian uh, companies as well getting involved. Are we seeing anything coming from outside of Asia? What's the situation there like at the moment in terms of getting a foothold or maybe acquiring a an Asian operation? Are there any of the big mean, IT players? Yeah, I mean, coming from the US. I mean, from, from the United States, right? Yeah. So he, this is a really good point that you bring up. And while we're not seeing anything in the press yet, at least not that I can remember off the top of my head, 
what we are seeing is rumblings from our connections, right, from mm. people that we know in powerful places in the United States who are coming to us and saying, and, and frankly from Europe as well, um, in the fintech space, but also in other spaces and saying, look, we have very successful companies in the United States and in Europe, you know, Series B, Series C funded, and they're now at the point where they're considering expanding into Asia. Mm. And what they're doing is they're asking us, you know, not not for consulting, but for advice about where are the best places to expand, how are the, what is the best way to expand, what types, you know, what are the cities that they should be looking at. Again, which gets back to all of the information that we've been discussing tonight, and that is what's happening, who's doing things, where is it happening, and why is it happening, and which sides are getting chosen. But yeah, I think over the next year or so, you're going to start to see a lot more interest from U.S.-based companies that have sort of nailed the market in the U.S. and are now thinking about where can I expand. And whereas before, they may have expanded to sort of other English-speaking, similar-looking countries, they're, you know, Asia is now really getting on their map. And, you know, whereas the Indian market has been very well invested and the Chinese market has been very well invested as well, both from foreigners and domestically, the Southeast Asian market is sitting there just waiting for this to happen. The Chinese started it last year, continued it this year, and I think you're going to start to see, like I said, over the next six to 12 months, large U.S. entities come in. Sure, Amazon came into Singapore this year, I believe, in July, but they didn't acquire anything. They just sort of put their flag down and said they were going to start doing business here. But I think at some point, the next time we hear a story about acquisition, sorry, let me just finish the thought, is that Amazon will acquire a company like Pomelo as opposed to Alibaba or JD. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, you didn't. Yeah, I was just going to ma- I was going to yeah, mention that, WeWork as an example. So yes, getting yes. into Singapore, yes. and I think as well, you know, you, you talked about U.S. companies investing in English-speaking uh, countries because it, you know obviously that's easier. But, comfort. It's just comfort. Yeah, it's comfort, and it's less of a risk. You know, I think also. I mean, we don't talk a lot about it here in Asia Tech podcast, but there's been a lot of Australian-led M and A activity into sure. Asia, right? And that's sort of something sure. that's always happened below the radar because Japan and China have always taken the the headlines. But you know, Australia have been out there acquiring around Asia, in particular Southeast Asia, for you know a good a good portion of this decade and i think if you're looking at the volume they're probably about number three in the region so yeah. it's not like and language is no, an issue right no it's not and you know australia actually ends up being very close to southeast asia a lot of australians travel frequently to indonesia um to bali but also to thailand and the rest of the region and you know whether it's the Passat brothers is through their entity called Sikh com, which was involved in the Job Street deal actually a few years ago, and they'd been involved in that actually for a while. They just bought the portion that they didn't already own. I think it was back in 2013. Yeah, they've been at the forefront of investing in this region, like you said, since the beginning, and I think you'll probably see more of it, right? So I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that Telstra is actually the yeah. entity that's behind Muru D. That's correct, yeah. And, they're right, based and I think in Sing- gonna, Sydney, right? And they're in Singapore, yeah. yeah. So you're going to continue to see that. Um, you know, back in the old days, it's not that long ago, but Polonizer as well, so run by Phil Morrill, yeah. who hopefully we'll be interviewing as well. Um, also deeply involved in, you know, teaching the lean startup method and stuff to the rest of Asia, not just in, in um, Australia. So I think you make a really good point there. Yeah. 
So, I mean, there's no excuses, really. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is that yeah. American companies could look at Asia and say, well, you know, language is always going to be an issue. But if you think that the, even if you take Japan as an example, nobody else speaks Japanese in Asia. So, you know, they've been doing it for, well, more than 10 years now. And one of the biggest foreign investors in, you know, countries like Vietnam, especially in, you know, the tech scenes as well. So, right. And they've been that way for decades, as you mentioned. Yeah. So it's, it's never really an excuse, is it not to be involved? And I think, you know, once you get out here, especially if you're lis listening to this podcast and you're interested in Asia as an option, I think you have to realize what's going on. I mean, Michael's mentioned a few things today, which I think a lot of people aren't aware of. I mean, like the whole idea of the greater Bay as a thing, right? I mean, Unless you know right. what we're talking about and you've actually seen. I mean, this is a megalopolis of 200 million people, you know, and that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. In, in no, sort of, no, the, the, scale, the scale of that greater Bay region is huge. It's exactly. Just, it's unprecedented. You, so these kind of ideas, and then you talk about, for example, the growth, and you talk about, like tonight, you talked about Singapore and Hong Kong syncing up on that fintech deal. Well... Anybody that's looking in Asia really has to come and have a look. You've got to get here and you've got to go check out, see what's going on. Because I think what's happening now is that maybe there's a sense of confidence, isn't it? Well, you're talking about these Chinese companies coming out and acquiring Southeast Asia. We're starting yes. to see the second wave. There's been a first wave of the pioneers who've bla blazed trails, taken risks, went out there and did this thing. They went out across border sought out new ventures and created case study success stories for people to follow. And I think that's creating confidence now in this second wave of companies to come out and start looking around Asia. So I think you're starting to see something really interesting happening. I agree. I agree. Is there anything else you want to cover? Because if not, I've got a surprise. You got to, I was going to ask, what is the surprise, Michael? <laughs> it's been making me laugh all day. Doesn't I try to, when we talk about what's the big surprise, I try to do something that's topical enough that I may have actually noticed it today, but definitely sometime in between the last time you and I talked um, on the record. Anyway, so I was, you know, looking at my Facebook feed today and I saw this kind of orange sign that said, you know, get your tickets now before they run out, before they're gone. And I thought, oh my, you know, there really isn't, and we can talk about this on another podcast, but there really isn't a good way, I think, for people to figure out, um, you know, when events are really taking place in a consolidated fashion. So we'll we'll fix that too. But, um, you know, I just wondered, what is this event that's in orange, and why is it so timely that if you don't grab your tickets now, it says before they're gone. Right. Okay. And then I looked at it, and it said... <laughs> <laughs> and it said Texas Global Summit 2018. Wow. So then I had to, because I'm just so interested in this, then I had to go look and see, you know, when it was taking place. Because it seemed like Texas just happened recently. And my memory wasn't so great, but it was July. So it was a few months ago. But that meant that if it was on the same schedule as it was last year, it was going to be, you know, almost a year away. I did the math, actually, on it. It's June 22nd and June 23rd, and that would be exactly 233 days away from today. So I don't understand why you would want to get a ticket before they're gone. Um, but I went to the page, and again, it's not a big surprise to me that, that they're sort of starting to advertise and shrill for this stuff 233 days before because, you know, the stuff that was being said last year, and again, this is just my personal opinion, right? 
this is not the opinion of any other media outlet. But, you know, they said there were 6,000 people there. I mean, I was at the event both days, and there was no more than 2,000 people there at any one place in mm. time. Um, and they're saying that there are going to be 10,000 people here. So basically what they're saying is that this is going to be almost as big as Rise in Hong Kong. And frankly, I don't think it would be a big surprise, hence the, hence the title of this segment, if less than half of those people were there. And if you look at the other things that they're listing, sorry, attendees plus 10,000, speakers 200 maybe, investors 300, journalists 200. So there are as many journalists as there are speakers. And you probably haven't looked at this yet, and I don't like guessing games, but if I said to you, how many countries do you think would be represented at an event that had 10,000 attendees and another 1,000 journalists, investors, and speakers, what would your claim be for how many countries would be represented there? In terms of delegates or speakers? No, just how many countries would be represented. So, like, my daughter goes to the you know, New International School of Town, NIST, right? Right, right? And they say that there are 70 countries represented at the right, school. Right. So how many countries do you think would be represented at well, this? Well, there's 10,000 people. Yeah, yeah, I would have thought about at least 70. I mean... Yeah, so whoever's doing the math or the marketing right. here doesn't understand that. It says 30. Well, okay. I don't know. And I know you don't want to comment on it. It's just my little thing, and that's why like, it's a big right. surprise. Texas. Frankly, it's in Bangkok. Huh? Yeah, Texas. Global but you, Summit, yeah. 2018, you know, but I guess my question really is... Why so early? Yeah, I don't believe. I mean, I used to run an events business years ago, and we talk about this sometimes, Michael. Right? And you know, I, I never see events sell out. Even the ones that claim to sell out are still selling Correct. tickets right up until the wire. Exactly on, on the phone. Yeah, exactly, and they'll always make space. An event company yeah, will always find space because every new ticket is profit straight to the bottom line. They'll be there on Correct. the day. You could walk up and buy a ticket. Maybe there are some events. I mean, are there events that do sell out? I don't know. But does it matter? You know, they're creating no. false scarcity, right? Yeah, so that's the thing that I – well, they're creating false, in my mind, a lot of things. But, yeah, but false scarcity for sure. But it's just interesting to me, like, somebody just wrote down a bunch of numbers that they didn't even think about when they wrote them down. And, you know, last year was this big claim about 6,000 people. And, you know, through my non-scientific discussions with people who'd run events before that were there, they were like, I never saw more than 1,800 people there at any one time. So I get it. Maybe 60,000 people bought tickets, but highly unlikely. Anyway, this year they want to almost double. I mean, I know six times two is not 10. It's 12, but still. And again, 233 days in advance, it won't be a big surprise to me if they're still 50% off a week before. It's a really hard business to crack. And hats off to Casey and his team at you know, at Rise for at Rise for kicking, but yeah, every totally. year getting fifty. Yeah. Because it, again, it's an organic thing as well. You can't. It's really hard to just go out and say, "Yeah, we're going to double it this year." That's where businesses fail. That's a very dangerous game to play. And I'd like to, be able to track this and see. Not that I'm, I'm willing these guys to fail, but I'm just curious to know if no, they can no, pull no. it off, right? Because to go from an event and double the size without people. You know, coming Same to you. Venue, by the way, yeah, I mean, ripping Sorry. your you're ripping your arm off for tickets in the first event. That's the only situation where you can justify and go out and double your, you know, your your seating capacity. Right. Because right. otherwise, you're in for what's going to happen is you end up pretty much with the same situation, but just with a harder sales pitch, and maybe starting earlier, which is what they're doing now, and that it's that's very early. difficult to maintain. And it, I think, the costs ramp significantly on a you know a, a setup like this what happens is Agreed. they end up discounting all the tickets towards the end end up with a lot of unsold inventory 
Yeah, it's a dangerous game. But if they can pull it off, then wow, fantastic. Wow is right. But isn't there a, so? Isn't there like an optimal size for almost everything? And isn't there an optimal amount of time prior? So we know this from, you know, running events, but also from interviewing people and talking to people. And that is yeah. the likelihood that. So if I ask you, can I interview you tomorrow, and you say yes, you're going to be there. Yeah. But if I ask you, can I interview you in eight weeks from now? You'll say yes, but something's going to come up in the interim. And I think it's the same thing for an event. Like, you don't. No one ever gets invited to your fiftieth birthday party just after you turn forty-nine, yeah. even if they really want to go. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Because even, you know, Rise, you know, which is the Web Summit people, right? They'll say, okay, Hong Kong's done. The next one's going to be in, you know, somewhere Helsinki. That's slush, but still, you know what I mean. Right. And that's only three months later. So. Fair enough, but this is the same exact thing in the same location, same venue, same people, and expected to be you know one point seven times bigger. I don't know. Let's just see what happens. Anyway, yes, yeah. won't be a big surprise if none of these metrics get met. Frankly, yeah. I don't know. Let's see. We we don't know what these guys are capable of. I know you're sort of, you've nope, actually right. experienced this event, so maybe you have a more informed opinion. Yep. Maybe maybe they know something that we don't. I'm sure they do. You know, see, I could get ten thousand people to an event. If you gave it away, if you paid people to go to it, right? So sure, that's the point, isn't it? There's one thing having a big event, and there's another thing having a profitable event, or even just a useful event. I mean, frankly, I didn't want to talk about this tonight, but you know, having 300 investors there and the way that that sort of investor speed dating thing worked was just abysmal. So hopefully, that changes in yeah. the next 233 days. And if it doesn't, we'll do it ourselves. Absolutely, we're going to do it ourselves anyway, to a certain extent when we launched the pitch, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, summarizing tonight, going back to the rankings, the vote, we've launched the accelerator vote. So if you go to asiatechpodcast.com slash rankings, you'll be able to see the latest awards, get in there and nominate the accelerator programs you think should be on that list because as we said, we're mapping out the industry. So those that get featured really will be in the minds of people who not necessarily in the region, but also people outside of the region who may be looking at Asian thinking, right, okay, who do I partner with? Who do, who do I use as, a, as a, you know, a, a foot on the ground in Asia? So to have your presence out there um, you know, really starts with getting on those rankings and getting nominated. So that's a first port of call. But if you're not part of an accelerator program or you, you're working with an accelerator program, you can vote for other accelerator programs on that list and as well the individual contribution award as well as the other five categories that we've got four weeks to run still plenty to do still plenty to duke out at the top of the rankings more to come michael yeah many more to come and at some point um you know we may do we we will probably do the university one that we talked about but there are more things that we can ask people about as well and i think we're getting suggestions often about what to do and we'll implement those too Thanks a lot, guys. You can tweet us as ever at Asia Tech Pod. If you want to go and check out our latest podcast, go and check out www.asiatechpodcast.com. We have, well, I think four podcast streams out now. The weekly we stories, a not AI, sorry, not out yet. Weekly stories, crypto, and angel angels. Angels. Exactly, more to come. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.